John chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. This is um, something that occasionally happens as a pastor. You realize you wore the same clothes you wore on the video shoot day. (laughs) I got more than this, just so you know. So if you were around last Sunday, uh, we read the first five verses of John chapter one, and we picked up right where we left off. That is the intent uh, each week as we lead up to Christmas. We are going to build and build. We're wringing out the first 14 verses of John's gospel for everything they're worth. And the punchline, the place that we're driving toward as we move up to Christmas is this, the word became flesh. William Barclay calls that phrase from John chapter one possibly the greatest single verse in the New Testament and certainly the sentence for which John wrote his gospel. But how John gets there provides the context necessary for understanding the profundity and audacity of that claim, so we're gonna move slowly, spending this Advent season in just 14 verses. Now, Hakeem got us off to a brilliant start last week, and today we're going to make our way through the deep weeds of John chapter 1. So as an anchor for you to hold to as we make our way through these movements uh, is this single statement, glorious promises grounded in reality. That's those 11 verses in the statement, glorious promises grounded in reality. We'll take that phrase in two parts, and we're going to start by retreading on some familiar ground from last week. So if you don't have your Bible open, open it to John chapter one. I'm gonna pick up right in verse one. So when I say it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, what do you think of? Yeah, I mean, I can't tell what you're saying, but I'm assuming you're saying a tale of two cities, right? Charles Dickens. Come a little louder for this one. Call me Ishmael. Moby Dick. How about this? Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four Privet Drive were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Harry Potter, slightly more lowbrow in the literary community, but arguably more magical. Let's do one more. Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house. Does anyone know what that's called? No, it's called A Visit from St. Nicholas. By Clement Clark Moore, I also thought it was from Twas the Night Before Christmas. Might be time for a rebrand, a second printing or something. Now, the point is that all of those are famous opening lines. When you hear those words, they take you somewhere. They transport you into a particular narrative and a particular reality. So if I were to stand before you in a room like this one and drop the line, "'Twas the night before Christmas," I would obviously be doing so intentionally to take you somewhere in your imagination. And that is exactly what the Apostle John was doing in the opening line of his gospel. In the beginning was the word. 
In the beginning is a loaded phrase. Those are the first words in the Bible. They're the opening line of the story that the Jews have grounded their lives and culture in for thousands of years. The opening lines of the very story that's carried them from slavery to deliverance to prosperity to exile, those are the words that they would have recited in the temple since childhood. That might be the most distinct phrase in the whole of the Hebrew language, and he just opened with it. Now, John is a Jew. He knows exactly what he's doing. If he were doing a book launch reading for his new gospel at the Jerusalem equivalent to Powell's, I imagine he would have paused here just to let it land in the beginning was the word, something like that. Because with that phrase, every Jew who picked up John's biography of Jesus would have immediately thought, oh, he's telling our story. In the beginning was the word, or was the logos in Greek. This is the language it was originally written in. That is just as loaded, because logos is the foundational term of Stoic Greek philosophy. Logos means the rational principle by which everything existed. It was the common foundation that makes rational sense of the world. So philosophy is all about deconstruction of everything that we assume to be true to get down to the very essence of what is. And logos was the floor of philosophical deconstruction. It was a term that the Greek Stoics would use to say, if we strip life down to its very essence, there's something at the core holding this whole thing together. There's something that makes existence possible. Whatever that something is, let's agree to call it logos. And so they did. Now again, John knows what he's doing. By the time he wrote this, there's 100,000 Greek-speaking Christians for every one Jewish Christian. That is how the extent to which the early church had spread through the Roman Empire. So with the word logos, every Greek who picks up John's biography of Jesus would immediately think, oh, he's telling our story. This is the best way I know to show you what, what John has just done in these six words. Imagine that you're at a holiday cocktail party. It's one where you were invited by a friend, you don't really know the other people there, and the worst thing imaginable happens, you arrive first, and your friend's running five minutes behind. So what do you do? You grab a beverage and mingle. And by mingle, I mean you grab onto that first little conversation cluster. You can find room to fit yourself in physically because mingling is like being lost at sea and every little conversation is a life raft. It doesn't matter which one you get on, you're just drowning out there, right? So you find your way into one of those and five minutes into that conversation that you're using as a life raft, you hear someone in another conversation across the room get everybody laughing with the story that you're telling so it gets your attention. And then you hear them bring up the town that you grew up in. And then you hear them name your childhood best friend by first and last name. What do you do? you immediately start figuring out when you can get off of this life raft and swim to that one because someone over there is telling your story and you want in on that. John just did that to the entire Greco-Roman world in six words. You gotta admit, this guy is good. <laughs> He's telling all of our story and it's the oldest story. The opening paragraph of John's gospel runs parallel to the creation account in Genesis. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. They were together, and they were the same. The logos, the core philosophical principle, was with the theos, the divine being. In fact, the logos is the theos. I know, 
But this is more than just philosophical mumbling. John is taking the apex of Greek academic thought and he's placing it within the Hebrew Torah to make the most substantial claim for the very foundation of our existence. The principle that holds the whole world together is a person. Now, of course, the Bible does not have a monopoly on theories around life's origin and meaning. The ancient Greek world had plenty of creation stories, and the primary theme that ran through all of the other ones was power. They all went something like this. There was an epic battle in the pantheon of the gods in the heavens. One god won, and then all the others fell into rank beneath that god. That god who had rightfully claimed the throne is now the powerful creator of all that we know and exist and experience. John's summary of Genesis was the word was with God and the word was God. So he is proposing this theory that uh, there was in the beginning a triune God that lived in a perfect communion of love and God experienced selfless love and the desire to share that love with another, a little bit like a married couple who looks at one another one day and says, you know, this love that we're sharing between the two of us is so good. What about if a little bit of me and a little bit of you could come together to create another and then we could direct the love that we share at that other? So the core principle of the biblical creation story is one of love, not power. In the beginning there was power. That's the foundation of all of the other stories. In the beginning there was love. That's a profoundly different starting place. John opens his account of Jesus' life not with a nativity scene, and I know that that's gonna be disappointing to some of you. But instead he does it by pulling the whole world into the oldest story ever told to propose the most substantial foundation for life that's ever been offered, and he offers it to Jews and Greeks, to philosophy professors, and to illiterate peasants, the guiding principle that makes all of existence possible, the principle that holds the whole world together, and the principle that holds you together is a person defined by love. This is more than just rehashing the past or rewording Genesis. John is drawing Jew and Greek together to make a claim that both the temple and the Parthenon are gonna find offensive or intriguing or probably both. The oldest story has a second chapter. Let's look back at our Bibles now and pick up in verse four. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines out in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Genesis opens with nothing but darkness. It's formless and void. And then God's opening line of dialogue in his own script is, let there be light. And then light floods the darkness, and the rest of creation follows. God said it, and then it came to be. John then calls Jesus the light of all mankind. In the beginning, God said it, and it came to be. There is no separation between God's speech and God's action. What he says is, is what really is. That'll matter for you later. Now, I said a minute ago that John doesn't bother with the nativity scene. That isn't entirely true. He just sums it up really tightly like this. The light shines out in the darkness. That's his birth story. In the beginning, there was a God loving enough to share that love with the likes of us, and there's still a God that loving, loving enough to enter into the darkened creation to start a new creation right here in the infected soil. So here is John's opening scene of the second chapter of the oldest story. The creator is the recreator. The one who breathed on the chaos bringing order also gasped for breath between newborn infant screams. 
The one who spoke creation into being also babbles like a baby. The one who said, let there be light, also walks along the Sea of Galilee and says, follow me. And the one for whom, whose speech creates, the one for whom there is no separation between what he says and what really truly is, now says over you, forgiven, redeemed, welcomed, trusted. See, when he calls you mine, it's not a sentiment, it's not even a desire, it's what really unchangeably is. The creator has entered into his own creation to go on creating. The creator is the recreator. That's the claim. And it's more than a claim, and it's more than a sentiment, and it's more than a seasonal feeling. It's real. I've seen it. I once sat by a fire pit in, in a late summer evening and watched the last bits of the sunset come and land over the horizon. He's the creator. And I sat there across from a friend who was celebrating seven years sober and was more alive in Christ than he'd ever been on a bender, recreator. Can you see it? I've laid on a rooftop in Kenya at midnight, gazing up at the stars above me, brighter than any stars I've ever seen, creator. And I was laying on the roof of an orphanage for young girls who had been rescued from forced prostitution and were having their childhoods and their innocence redeemed and restored, recreator. Do you see that? I've walked laps around a snow-covered park in New York City where a blanket of white can come down on dead trees and dirty sidewalks and make it look more beautiful than any painting. Creator. And I've walked those laps next to a a single mother who had left an abusive relationship and then discovered true relationship in Jesus in her mid-40s and was finally coming alive and being dignified. Recreator. I have driven miles through farmland with the windows rolled down under the perfect summer sun, creator. And in the passenger seat next to me sat Ramon, a young man of color from low-income housing whose father was behind bars, a statistic waiting to happen. But I was driving him to college, the first in his family to ever cross that threshold. And it was all because his life turned on the dime of discovering that there was a truer father who knew him first and who would never leave. Recreator. I could keep on going, yes, I could keep going. It comes in every variety you can imagine, but we gotta keep moving through the text. So let's just sum it up here. The creator is the recreator. The light shines out in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That's not a metaphor, that's a promise. True Detective is a television show that I cannot in good conscience recommend to you. It is vulgar and crude, and it's totally unwatchable most of the way through, but it does have one of the more poetic endings that I've ever seen to a television show. And the final scene, which gives nothing away about the story, relax, but the final scene, and Marty pushes Rust, who's played by Matthew McConaughey, out of the hospital in a wheelchair for a breath of fresh air. And looking up at the stars with the cigarette hanging off his lips, Rust has tears welled up behind his eyes and he says, I tell you, Marty, I've been laying in that room looking out that window every night thinking there's just one story, the oldest. Oh yeah, what's that? Light versus dark. And then Marty looks up at the stars and then back at Rust and says, 
it appears to me the dark's got a lot more territory. And then there's a long pause. And he says, you know, you're looking at it wrong, the sky thing. Because once there was only dark. So if you ask me, the light's winning. Now I am aware of the many, many dangers in comparing the Apostle John to Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> that being said, you got to admit, that does sound a whole lot like the light shines out in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It appears to me the darkness has a lot more territory. Yeah, 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 but you're looking at it wrong because once there was only dark. So if you ask me, the light's winning. The light shines out in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It's not a metaphor. That's a promise, friends. And what if it's not just a statement about the ultimate fate of creation, but what if it's also a statement about the present state of your one single life? That's what makes the very next verse such good news. Let's continue reading. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now here's what I respect about John's gospel and about the whole of scripture for that matter. It does not let you stay in the stars for long. He wants you to know how good it is. So he lays that out as poetically as he can in just a few words. The creator is the recreator. But as soon as he's got you there, he brings those promises crashing down to earth. The light shines out in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So there's this guy named John. Well, that was a quick turn. Uh, what was cosmic and heavenly just a moment ago has now come crashing down into your rib cage in that insistently personal way that the relational God will not let us get away from. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. It really is that glorious. There was this guy sent from John, or this guy sent from God, his name's John. It really is that grounded. Glorious promises grounded in reality. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. So Jesus comes with a witness. Why didn't God just send Jesus in Genesis 4? I mean, why not send the Redeemer right after the fall? Why do we even have the countless generations and thousands of years that we call the Old Testament? If you're gonna redeem it, what's taking you so long? If you're holding the ace, why are you slow playing your hand? You know what I'm saying? Have you ever wondered about that? Because the level of gift that God was giving us in making his being into our flesh required significant preparation. That's the Old Testament pattern, is that this gift is so big that it requires preparation. And we see that played out again and again and again. Just take, take for example, Joseph. God's got big plans for his life, and he's got a killer robe with many colors. Maybe you know his story. His brothers threw him into a well and then left him for dead. It seems like God has forgotten him year after year after year after year from that point forward. He's trafficked, enslaved, falsely accused, imprisoned. Why not just pull him out of the well, God? If you're gonna redeem his story, what's taking you so long? Because all those years of darkness were necessary preparation for the light to break through for the most profound, far-reaching kind of redemption when he would be reunited with the father who loves and longs for communion with him and reconciled to the siblings that he has broken, fractured relationship with. 
And you know who that sounds like? Jesus, reconciled with the Father and reunited with brothers and sisters. This is the Old Testament pattern. The level of gift that God is giving us is so significant that it requires significant preparation in order for us to recognize it when it's right in front of us and then receive it as our very own. And John is the last in a long line of witnesses who prepared the way for Jesus. Cue Matthew chapter three. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And Matthew explains Jesus' identity by quoting a prophecy from Isaiah. And in fact, it's not just Matthew. All four gospels quote this very line from the prophet Isaiah to explain the identity of John the Baptist. And that puts this in very, very exclusive biblical company. Isaiah was pointing ahead to the last in a long line of witnesses, the one who would make the way for the Savior to come, and then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all agree, and his name is John the Baptist. Now let's keep reading. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So there's only one light, but there is a life that exposes the dark for what it really is. There's a way that we can live in this world that does not belong to this world. There's a kind of life that exposes this world as a place of promises that it can't keep. And if you wanna know that life, just look at John, not the author, the one they call John the Baptist. Now a few verses later we read, now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. All four gospels record this part too, that the priests came to check out John. There's some wilderness baptizer who's drawing a big crowd. And so they took their day off to go check him out and hear him preach. And John is the son of a Levite priest. His mother is also a descendant from the Levitical priesthood. He has been steeped in the priestly tradition his entire life. And and these aren't just any priests coming to hear him. We're talking about Sadducees and Pharisees, the most elite groups of priests, the best of the best. They've come to hear him preach. I mean, this is the kind of audience John's father would have dreamed of having for one of his sermons, and they're coming miles into the wilderness to hear you. This is John's moment to prove himself. It's his moment to show them that he belongs, to wow his most impressive peers. David Brooks wrote an op-ed piece for the Times a few years ago, pointing out that today's generation of young adults are phenomenally accomplished and deeply insecure at the same time. And he notes that much of the West in their 20s, 30s, and 40s have accomplished more in the first half of life than most previous generations accomplished in the whole of life. But a generation of recognized and decorated high achievers is also a generation of emotionally fragile, inwardly insecure high achievers. Why is that? Why isn't accomplishment and pursuit and achievement producing confidence? Why is it only cloaking fragility? Well, the sociologist David Reisman saw this coming all the way back in the 60s when he wrote, as adult authority disintegrates, the young are more and more captives of each other. When adult control disappears, the young's control of each other intensifies. And he was talking about a shift that was coming and even beginning then when deriving identity through the approval of authority figures was going away and being replaced by deriving identity through the approval of my peers. So there was a time, and it wasn't that long ago, when parents, teachers, role models, elders held authority. 
So I feel smart when my teacher gives me a good grade or I'm, I feel important when a person uh, of authority takes interest in me. I'm secure when I'm loved by my parents. And that had its own issues, but they're not the issues of today's modern young adult. Because in, in a time uh, we live in, the elder has been replaced by the peer as the new standard. So if my CEO doesn't think I have potential, then he can be dismissed as a power drunk, tunnel vision, authoritative dictator who doesn't get me. Or, or if my mom or an old mentor or the direct supervisor at my old office uh, thinks that I'm out of bounds, so be it. But if that small group of friends to which I belong makes me feel excluded, that's unbearable. Not living up to the standard of an authority figure is called disobedience, and I can live with that. Not living up to the standard of my friends is called rejection, and I'm paralyzed by that. Henry Nouwen says, many young people may even be enslaved by the tyranny of their peers. And the real trouble with needing the approval of my peers is that it robs me of the ability to love my peers. Right, if, if I need you to affirm me to like me, to make me feel okay, then I'm performing for you. And that robs me of compassion. It robs me of the freedom to see you, hear you, know you, and ultimately to love you. So my accomplishments may cloak my outward appearance, but inwardly I'm emotionally fragile, deeply insecure, and always teetering on the edge of rejection. That's the common condition of the young adult today, but not John. John is approached by the peers that he should want approval from, that he should want to impress, the circle that he's supposed to want in on, and he doesn't perform. He witnesses. I'm not the light. I'm just here to expose the dark so you can recognize the light when he shows up. Don't you see how free he is? He is not preoccupied with impressing the gatekeepers of his success. John can look the people that he should crave approval from the most right in the eye and then offer them the very same invitation that he's been giving to the peasants. I'm not the light. I'm just here to prepare a way for the light. But you can come into these waters and be baptized so that you can truly see when he shows up. John was free. And people that free are dangerous. They're a threat to the kingdom of this world and to the status quo. That's why they paved the way for the kingdom of God to come. See, if you can live the same way in front of your CEO and your best friend because your identity is not dependent on either one of their approval of you, then you've become dangerous. Or if you can sit with a friend over margaritas and chips and then sit with the same friend over a glass of water and have exactly the same experience because your motive is relational love, not self-indulgence, then you've become dangerous because the cravings and appetites of this world have lost their grip on you so you can crave the world that is to come? What if we actually believed that freedom from the appetites of this world is more satisfying than getting everything we want? What a gift we might be to Portland then. Or, or what if we actually rooted ourselves so deeply in his intimacy that we were free enough that we could love our neighbor? What a threat we might be to the status quo then in the best kind of way. That is a life that exposes the dark. So witnessing is about freedom. But there's another scene, one that comes later in John's life that shows us that witnessing is also about waiting. Matthew chapter 11 says this, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? 
This is John the Baptist's crisis of faith. Years later, John's being held in a prison cell in Jerusalem without just cause, and so he sends a message to Jesus. Are you really the guy? Or should we be looking for somebody else? Now, what's behind that question? I've gone all in on the glorious promises. I thought the light was here to push back the dark, and it was looking promising for quite a while there, but now I'm looking at the four walls and metal bars of a prison cell thinking, how can this be it? So are you really the guy or should we be looking for someone else? Is this it? Everything significant that God does in this world and in us, it involves long stretches of waiting. Why? Because these promises don't stay in the stars. They get grounded down here in reality. And the reality of this world includes things like delay, pain, loss, disappointment, and unmet expectations. Are you the one who is to come or should we look for someone else? I thought the light was here to push back the dark, but how can a cop behind bars possibly be part of the plan? How can redemption hurt this much? Is this it? We know that question. You don't get very far into a life of faith or just into life itself for that matter without asking your own version of the question, how can this possibly be it? Now John's given himself to redemption. I mean, he was a witness first by freedom, but now he's being invited to grow into maybe even a more mature witness by waiting. And we are all too familiar with the waiting that this life in this world deals us. With another round of resumes to send out, or another round of chemo, another negative on another pregnancy test, another underwhelming first date, another specialist, another gray winter day, another shift at the same old job, or another afternoon staring at the four walls of a prison cell just waiting for the night to come. How can this be it? How can redemption hurt this much? How can something as mundane or painful or disappointing as this possibly be part of something as grand as recreation? So are you the guy or should I start hoping in somebody or something else? Is this it? You know what it's like to ask that question? You asking some version of it now even? Psalm 131 paints a picture of the witnessing that happens in waiting. Verse two, right in the middle says, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. It's a memorable image. A weaned child is one that's no longer nursing. And any parent of a newborn will tell you that a nursing child is controlled by his needs. Hungry, bloated, dirty, angry, every need is urgent and every need is, is communicated through screaming and kicking and crying until mom or dad figures out what need this is and meets it and then I can relax. But the only kind of peace experienced in infancy is brief and fleeting. It is the faux peace of having my need met, my discomfort relieved, my weight ended. But the weaned child knows his mother beyond the most urgent need. The weaned child has learned the deeper peace of his or her mother's presence. In other words, for the weaned child, they have discovered 
that peace is not the end of the wait, it is the presence of my mother with me in the waiting. Psalm 131 is one of the shortest psalms. It's three verses long. You can read it in a second. Charles Spurgeon called it the shortest to read but the slowest to learn. We bear witness to the light by learning the peace of God and trusting him in the midst of the dark. And Jesus' preferred teaching metaphors were agricultural. He's constantly pointing out ways that the creator has written divine lessons into the very soil that we live on. And it is a miserable farmer who plants a seed and then goes out day after day to anxiously look to see if it's working. Did it take, has the seed broken soil? Will it really make good on its promise to go from this tiny little thing to growing into something that can nourish and satisfy? No, the farmer has to get used to the rhythm that every harvest requires waiting. That between planting and reaping, there are long stretches of cold, dark days when all the real work is happening in underground, invisible to me. Every time a farmer sows a seed, it's an act of radical trust. And every winter between planting and reaping, that farmer must know peace in the midst of darkness. Waiting is where we discover peace or get eaten alive by anxiety and toil. Peace, that elusive state that we're all after, it's ultimately not found in resolution. Peace is not the end of the wait because what I'm waiting on is just gonna be replaced by another need and then another and the next one will feel as urgent as this one does. There's a deeper sort of peace, a variety of peace that cannot be taken by this world because it wasn't given by this world and it's presence. Peace is God's presence in the midst of pain. It is not the absence of pain. It's God's presence here with me in the waiting, not the end of the wait. In her book, When the Heart Waits, Sue Monk Kidd describes a conversation that she once had with a monk where she was trying to learn uh, the art of contemplative prayer. She says, I just can't get used to the idea of doing nothing. He broke into a wonderful grin. Well, there's the problem right there, young lady. You've bought into the cultural myth that when you're waiting, you're doing nothing. Then he took his hands and placed them on my shoulders, peered straight into my eyes and said, I hope you'll hear what I'm about to tell you. I hope you'll hear it all the way down to your toes. When you're waiting, you're not doing nothing. You're doing the most important something there is. You're allowing your soul to grow up. If you can't be still and wait, you can't become who God created you to be. Trust. That's our part in this whole peace business. We give God trust and in return he offers us peace. Waiting is the the soil that seed grows in. So are you the one who is to come? Or should we be looking for someone else? Is this it? And Jesus sends a message back to John's prison cell. This is it. This is how I'm remaking the whole world. This is what it looks like when glorious promises come crashing down grounded in reality. See, we do not have a God who's trying to build a new world while he ignores the current one. We have a God who is building a new world right here within the current one. He's planting seeds in the infected soil among the weeds. And that means that the arrival of this God includes things like delay, pain, loss, disappointment, and unmet expectations. It means that if you've ever asked questions like John's, you're in good company. You might even be on the verge of maturity. 
It means that if you can identify with any of these conditions, you're in biblical company. God's arrival means that he's plunging into the limits and the dysfunction of the current world to plant seeds of the world to come. And Christmas is the only Christian holy day that is also a secular holiday. And for that very reason, there's some biblical residue that has gotten stuck to the secular celebration. The holiday season, it stands for sentiments like joy, cheer, brightness, generosity, all of which are rooted in biblical advent and all of which are printed on your Starbucks cup and, and your Amazon gift card. Only the secular version then replaces Jesus, the source of those things, with snowflakes, mistletoe, and peppermint mochas. See, the the westernized secular Christmas is a celebration of glorious promises, but they are not grounded in reality. And that's why the holidays are a really happy time for a whole lot of people, but they're an incredibly painful time for an equal number of people. Because the holidays drag up whatever is. They drag up good memories from the past or painful memories from the past. They invite us to rest in the company of loved ones or to be forced to pass long, slow days thinking of the loved ones we don't have or the loved ones we wish we could trade out or to remember a loved one who's not here this year. Christmas drags up memories we want to relive over and over and it drags up memories we never want to relive but are forced to every December. The modern Americanized version of Christmas can be so painful because it's got all of the promise and none of the reality. It's sentimental and flimsy, it's glorious promises that don't get grounded in reality. God's arrival means glorious promises are grounded in the stark, dark reality of this world, even the waiting part. So let's return for the final portion of our teaching text and and this is where we're gonna land for today. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Those he came to didn't recognize him. Glorious promises got too close, too grounded in the harsh reality of this world. Glory came in disguise. See, the truth is that the very thing that made Jesus hard to recognize is also the thing that made him worth trusting. Jesus did not ask John to endure anything that he was not about to endure himself. Just like John, Jesus endured mockery, rejection, unjust arrest, and even execution. Jesus invites us to be his witnesses, to know the freedom of John, to know even more freedom than John but we do not get to avoid the waiting. Delay, pain, loss, disappointment, and unmet expectations. And Jesus himself faced those very things, the very conditions that he asks us to endure. Dorothy Sayers writes, for whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life to the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain, humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. 
Desmond Tutu once recounted the story of a Jewish prisoner in Auschwitz who was forced to clean toilets. And as he scrubbed this toilet bowl covered in filth, the Nazi soldier stood over him and mocked him, saying, where's your God now? And without even looking up from scrubbing, he said, he's right here with me in the muck. This is not a God who offers escape from the reality of this world, but a God who plunged headfirst into the worst of it to create a new world right within the current one. You see, Jesus hasn't revealed a God that we can perfectly understand, but he has revealed a God that we can perfectly trust. I trust the God who, even if he's not willing to make all the suffering go away and end all of the waiting, wears the suffering alongside me and waits with me. This is a story big enough to connect the dots of creation and the cosmos above, and it's also a story that's personal enough to include your suffering, your loss, your anger, your pain, your embarrassment, your unmet expectations, and your disappointment. These promises are that glorious, and they're equally grounded in that reality. So grounded, in fact, that the world didn't recognize him. But who did? Who saw glory even when it came in that disguise? Well, there was Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, an elderly, infertile woman who became pregnant in old age, who knew something about waiting. And there was Mary and Joseph, the parents of the Alpha and the Omega, not a bad assignment, but also an honor that cost them everything. They're gonna call you a liar and a fool. Your families will disown you and you'll have to live on the run. Your labor and delivery room is gonna be a rural stable and then you'll raise him as a refugee in Egypt. There was Simeon, an old man who waited his whole life on these promises and then they finally came to be when he was too old to be around for the highlight reel. And there was, an, there was Anna, a woman who was widowed 84 years ago and then spent the rest of her days living like a nun, fasting and praying day and night in the temple that she might one day see the Savior come to be. Oh, and there was those few shepherds that were working the night shift, the lowest on the totem pole of a profession that was considered so debased and unclean that anyone who took up that profession was not allowed inside the temple. And these were the night shift shepherds. It wasn't the robed priest who memorized the prophecies that recognized him. It was those who were well acquainted with suffering, who knew something about disappointment and unexpectations and unanswered prayers and squashed hopes. Those who knew all too well the reality of this world. Those who knew freedom but also who knew waiting. They were the ones who, who recognized glory when it came in this disguise. The creator is the recreator. The hand that hung the stars in the skies and called it good was the same hand that reached out and touched the leper's skin and called it clean. And the eyes that, that searched for the ashamed Adam and Eve when they were lost in the garden are the same eyes that locked with the Samaritan woman sitting on a well. And the voice that spoke creation into existence is the same voice that would not defend himself and let them put him to death so that I might have life. And he did all of that. The creator became the recreator so the ostracized could become the welcomed. So that the lonely could become the one who is never alone. So that the hiding could become the one who is seen and dignified. So that the one carrying a weight of sin that's too heavy to lift could have it replaced by an easy yoke and a light burden. And so the one who is condemned to die could have life. And life that never ends. And the kind of life you actually want to go on living forever because you're finally made whole. The best news is still coming, but we'll land here for today. Can you recognize him?
Can you recognize him? Can you recognize this glorious promiser when he comes that close? When he gets this grounded in our reality, in your reality? When he wears your burden alongside you, Emmanuel, that's what they called him. God with us, glory in disguise. But if you ask me, it's the most beautiful disguise. Can you recognize him?